Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes, click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crew at UGA podcast. I'm Kyler, a full-time staff member with Crew, and with me again this week on our Tuesday episode is Alan. How you doing, Al? Back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. Boys back together <laughs> for this week's episode. And we just want to say to all of you out there in podcast land, keep those reviews coming. Yeah. We're just excited that um, we're getting so many five-star reviews. We've gotten a review or two, right? Yeah, we have. We have. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we've got Just a few. keep those reviews coming. <laughs> Um, word of mouth reviews. I think uh, somebody told me that our podcast had been called indispensable information for college students. I think that's pretty accurate, don't you, yeah, Kyle? Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Man, so Alan, it's November, which is wild. Um, but hey, this semester, even though crew ministry has looked so different for us, we've still been able to do a lot of our normal things that we as staff and our students really love doing. And one of them being, of course, our senior nights. Mm -hmm. And so last Tuesday night, we had our very first one. And then next Tuesday, November 10th, we're doing our second senior night. And so Alan, why are these senior nights such a hit? Like, why are they so beneficial for our seniors at Crew UGA? Yeah, I just think we're doing something that not a lot of people at UGA do, which is pulling seniors aside and preparing them in multiple ways to have perspective on the changes that are coming up as they enter into their vocation and enter into the choices they're going to be making in a new environment. You know, a lot of people say when you graduate from college, that first year out of college could be the loneliest of your life because mm-hmm. very often you're moving to a new place. You don't have a lot of friends surrounding you. Right. You have a new job. Everything's new. There's so much transition. And I just think these senior nights really help with learning how do you think about things? How do you make good choices and preparing to make good choices before you get there? Right. And it's just amazing to me how little that happens at a university, even one as well-resourced as UGA. You might get some career counseling mm. or go to a career fair and get job interviews, but who's really preparing you to think well yeah. about living after you graduate? And I just think these are kind of cool times. We've kind of stumbled upon good ways to do that with people, and we have great friends that are willing to come in and speak and share their perspective and guide our seniors. And so it's kind of unique. I don't know of anyone else who's doing it the way we're doing it. Yeah. I really don't think so either. And, and even like other crew ministries, um, you know, outside of us, like, I don't know if they're doing much like this either. Well, I don't think they are because a number of them call us and say, what are you doing? What is happening? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's really cool. I love that we do it. I love that that's part of crew UGA here for us. Yeah, It is great. So November 10th, if you're a senior, and you weren't able to make the one last week, come on November 10th down to Watkinsville First Baptist. It's uh, it's going to be great. Yeah, it will. And so like Alan said, the second one is November 10th. You can find all the details for that on our website, in our social media, and then, of course, in the This Week at Crew email that goes out every week. But in this week's episode, we are doing talk number three of our series in Acts. Mm-hmm. And so last week, Daniel was here with us to talk all about the legacy of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. But this week, Alan, you're going to be talking about one of the Apostle Paul's sermons in Acts 17. Right. But before we do that, let's fill in some gaps between these two episodes. And so what has happened in Acts 8 through 16? 
Well, the short answer is a lot. A whole happened. bunch. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Half the book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so if you've been reading the Acts reading plan with us, you know that so much has happened in these nine chapters. And it's pretty amazing stuff. Like, really, all of it is. But let's briefly on this episode talk about a couple things. And so, Alan, let's first talk about the Apostle Paul. And we learned about him in last week's episode, but his name was Saul. And he wasn't an apostle yet. He wasn't even a follower of Jesus yet. And so what has happened to him from where we left off last week to where we're going today? Well, as those who read in the reading plan saw right after that story, Saul, who was persecuting the church out of his zeal for the Lord and probably out of a good heart in that he cared about the Lord's name, that he Mm -hmm. cared about the Lord's glory and really considered the Christian message to be heresy against the Lord, was persecuting the church. And Jesus came to him and in a very dramatic vision led him to a conversion on the Damascus Road. And we all talk about the Damascus Road experience. You even see the phrase Damascus Road pop up in literature sometimes. And it just means a sudden turn, a sudden conversion, where Paul sees Jesus face to face in a vision, as it were, in an appearance. And his life is completely changed. And Mm -hmm. so you you get that story of Paul in Acts chapter 9. He actually goes off, though it, it doesn't make it super clear in Acts, he actually goes off for three years, basically, and gets discipled um, Mm -hmm. by believers in another city as he grows in his faith. And then later, as you come back in Acts 13 through 17, you see the more mature Paul, who has turned into a Christian leader, Mm -hmm. um, starting to go out and do missionary journeys. In Acts 13, at the very beginning, the Lord says, set apart Paul and Barnabas, who Mm -hmm. I have called. And he sends them out, basically, to do missions work or, or what we might call apostolic style ministry, yeah. which has a lot to do with preaching the gospel, evangelism, church planning, taking the gospel to new people groups that haven't had it before. Yeah. Um, and th- this is uh, this is who Paul is. So we get introduced to him. Yeah. And so in these, in these uh, you know, nine chapters, there's a big shift that happens between Saul to Paul Correct. and who he is and what he's been doing. Yeah. And so now that we've caught up on him, there's still some other pretty key moments in these chapters that are worth noting, specifically with Peter. Hmm. And so remember, this is the same Peter that was an original follower of Jesus in the Gospels, and this is the same Peter who gave the first sermon in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. Well, Peter, in these chapters, he's doing his thing, he's, he's ministering to the Jewish people in this area, but then in chapters 10 and 11, something super significant happens to him. And so Peter, he has this dream or this vision of a huge sheet being let down from heaven. And in the sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And then Peter hears a voice from heaven saying, eat. And Peter, as a good Jew that he was, and as he knew the customs and what to eat, what not to eat, when he heard this, he said, no way. These are unclean animals here. I'm not going to eat that. But then the voice again said to him, what God has made clean, do not call uncommon or unclean. And so this is what Peter hears. Well, moving on, what happens next is the Holy Spirit then leads Peter to meet a man named Cornelius. And Alan, you've already talked about Cornelius in the first episode that we did. But remember, Cornelius, he was a Gentile or a non-Jew, and he was not a believer in Jesus. But the Holy Spirit led Peter to share the good news of Jesus with him. And Cornelius, with everyone around him, believed in the gospel. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. And so, Alan, maybe let's connect some of these pieces. What is so significant about this vision that Peter had and what happened to Cornelius? Specifically, what do we learn that's going on here that maybe connects to the story of Acts of the Whole? Right. Well, this is another 
ring of the tree, as it were, in the story of Acts. This is the ripple effect that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? In that we learn in the book of Acts, the gospel is not just for the Jews, but like the ripples in a pond going out when a drop hits it. The audience for the gospel is wider and wider and wider. And at every ring, you see this expansion of who gets included in the grace of God. And it's just exciting. It's it's amazing. And so here, you get to Acts 10, and you have a God-fearer who is a person who is not a Jewish proselyte. He hasn't been circumcised, but but he believes in the Lord. He's trying to follow the Lord, mm-hmm. and he's a Gentile. Yeah, And so he comes to know Christ. The Holy Spirit comes down and verifies that in the sight of uh, Peter and the others that are with him. And so now you have Peter having to go back to the church, especially the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, Right. And they're criticizing him, saying, why are you going to the Gentiles? That's yeah. unclean. Mm-hmm. Peter says, let me tell you. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not unclean anymore. Right. And, and he shares the whole vision about the whole vision of the sheet is God declaring mm-hmm. what I have declared clean, do not call unclean. And yeah. that the Gentiles are no longer unclean. They are to be part of the people of God yeah. in Christ. And so at the end of chapter 11, or at least in 17 and 18, you see the Jews say, wow, okay. And they say... Glory to God that even the Gentiles have been accorded faith in his name. And, and, and that moment of realizing this is for everyone. God's grace is for everyone. Mm. It's just amazing. Yeah. It absolutely is. It's so cool to see that, like we've talked about, this is Acts 1-8. Like yeah. it's happening. And That's right. It's, it's, it's going on. It's spreading. And, and what I love about this section, Acts 8-16, through 16, is I think we see this on display super clearly. You know, even personally, when I was reading it on the reading plan, in every section I saw the Holy Spirit leading Christians to take the gospel somewhere else. Mm. Like, it's in every section. Mm-hmm. And even in the beginning with the stoning of Stephen, like we mentioned, it was the stoning of Stephen, the very persecution of the Christian church, that caused the church to spread to Judea and Samaria like Jesus always intended it to. And so it's just so cool that throughout this section, over and over again, we see this um, and you know, we see God at work moving the gospel um, to to the uttermost parts of the world, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, and so now, enough recap uh, on, okay. on this section. Yeah. Alan, where are we going to be picking up in the story of Acts today? Okay, so we said in Acts 13 through 17, you begin to see Paul and his band of apostles making these missionary journeys. In other words, now that the Gentiles are included in the church... The gospel should go to the whole world, or the whole known world at that time. And so they keep traveling further and further out. And so here, as we've seen this happen for several chapters, we get to a point in Acts 17 where Paul is on a missionary journey, and he is journeying west along a road called the Via Ignatia, which is a Roman road, is one of the main Roman highways of the time, which passed through what we would call northern Greece at the at our time, Amphipolis and Apollonia and Thessalonica. And because of what happens in the city of Thessalonica, he turns off this road and heads south toward Berea and then eventually down to the the cultural capital of Athens. Okay. Okay. Now, Acts 17 is kind of a cool, unique chapter because (laughs) we get so much space devoted to Paul's Paul's ministry, even for a few days in one place. Hmm. And part of it is... Paul preaches a really amazing formative sermon in this chapter 
one of the cool ways to study Acts, if, if you ever want to go back and, and do it again, is to go through and, and just study the various sermons of Acts and what each message is. Hmm. It's a really cool picture. And that's what we're going to do today in a little bit. We're going to study this sermon, study this scene in Athens in Acts 17, which happens to be one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. So I, I grabbed this talk and said I wanted to do it. Yeah, I'm excited for yeah. this. So that's kind of where we are. Um, so in chapter 17, we won't read the entire chapter. We'll read some sections. But the first section in 1 through 15, which we won't read, what happens is Paul goes to the city called Thessalonica. Um, later in the Bible, he will write the epistles to the Thessalonians who lived in Thessalonica. Yeah. Well, this is Imagine where he, he meets them and, and where this church began. And one of the things that you see, not only in this story, but in so many others, is wherever Paul and Barnabas or some of the apostolic band went, there tended to be disruption. Hmm. And it wasn't on purpose that they went to cause disruption, but I think the message is the gospel can have a very disrupting presence when it busts into a culture. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later in Acts chapter 17, but in Thessalonica there's an uproar, and they eventually have to smuggle Paul out of the city at night. He goes down to another city named Berea, and they don't have quite as much of an uproar. They're a little more noble in how they receive him and listen and such, but other people come down from Thessalonica and start causing trouble again and chase him out of there. Mm -hmm. And Paul ends up running down to Athens, and running is actually probably not such an inappropriate term. He ends up in Athens by himself. Basically, they sent him on ahead and said, just go, get out of here, just go. And wait for us in Athens, and don't do anything till we get there. And the rest of his band is going to take care of the the, the Christians in Berea and Thessalonica, and then come down hmm. and join him. And that is where we pick up our story today. And we're going to start by reading Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. So, Kyler, why don't you start with that section in our story, and we'll go we'll go deep. All right, let's do it. So this is Acts 17, 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Okay, now this is the beginning of the story. Now this is a sermon, but it's also a story, Mm -hmm. and I think it's really helpful to get your imagination going on this story and that it describes such a scene, you can really picture what it's like to be there. And I think that's going to help us understand this story. So listeners out there, as we're doing this, I want you to think and imagine Paul in this story. Here's Paul, and he shows up in Athens. Now, Athens is this grand cultural center. Stunning white buildings, beautiful paved streets, Um, Some of the richest, finest thinkers of the day are in Athens. This is the cultural center, really, of the known world. Even though Rome is the political center, this is probably the cultural center. Hmm. And so here's Paul, and he begins walking around the city and observing Athens. 
And it says right here, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Or another translation says he was provoked in spirit. Mm. I like that word, provoked. Yeah. Righteous anger. Right. In other words, think about it. This is Greek mythology, right? Mm -hmm. He's walking around the city and he's seeing all these idols to the Greek gods that we learn about in mythology class. Right. And the more he sees it, the hotter he gets. Mm. Why? Because the God of the universe, the God who saved him, the God who hung on the cross, Mm. the God who created all of men and women, Mm. is not being worshipped. He's not mentioned anywhere. Instead, there's all these statues, there's all these idols, and it just makes Paul furious. He hates the idea that his God, he hates the idea that the real God of the universe is getting short shrift. Mm. is not getting the worship he's due. You know, you can think about this a little bit. You, you, this is an echo of what Jesus was like with the money changers in the temple. He walks in the temple that's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And instead, the worship of God is not happening where, it, happening where it's supposed to. Mm. But this blatant cheating commerce is happening and Jesus gets furious but it's a righteous anger because the object is the worship of God is not happening like it should be Hmm. well that's Paul and I just when I read that verse in verse 16 I just think of the question have I ever felt have you ever felt have we ever felt a similar distress and anger over the name of God being dishonored Hmm. and I think this never became perfectly real to me until one year, a number of years ago when I was living in East Asia, I had a chance uh, to go to Lhasa, Tibet in far western China. And um, it's a place I ended up going several times, but I remember the first trip I made there, we flew into this exotic place. We saw the Patala Palace, which is this very strange, unique building, semi-castle where the Dalai Lama once resided. But I remember walking around that city and being in that town. And if you've, if you've never been there or you've never seen any pictures of it, it's really kind of hard to understand and describe. But there are all these worshipers that make a pilgrimage to Tibet. And some of them will come from hundreds of miles. And they will take two steps and lay down prostrate on the ground, press their forehead into the ground, get up, take another two steps or the length of their body, hmm. lay prostrate, in other words, they're, they're basically prostrating themselves for hundreds of miles all the way to the central temple, which is called the Jokong Temple. And once they're there, they walk in a loop. There's several different loops around the temple where they will do the same thing, two steps and prostrate, two steps and prostrate. And they will spin these prayer wheels that are full of Buddhist scriptures on little pieces of paper because they believe if you spin the prayer wheel, it gives motion to your prayers and kind of wafts them up to heaven, as it were. Hmm. And I remember walking through and just watching this, and and this is called tantric Buddhism. It's a special strain of Buddhism. And I, I mean, I hate being critis- critical of other beliefs, and I, I don't mean to be critical of other people and such, but it must be said, this is idolatry. Hmm. And it was heartrending to me because I watched, it was like slavery. It was just one of the most dehumanizing practices of religion I had ever seen. Hmm. And I watched as, as people struggled around these circles laying prostrate. They literally had rocks pressed into their forehead. Um, some of them hadn't eaten in a long time. They're just haggard. But they're just, they're just working so hard to try to appease the gods, to try to get their prayers to heaven, 
to try to build up the karma, to try to earn righteousness. Mm. Um, and it infuriated me. Mm. I just remember walking around, seeing the idols, seeing all the Buddha statues, seeing all this going on. And I went back to my hotel that evening, and I was just beside myself. Mm. And it was righteous because... I was beside myself, not because it was a different culture or I was under culture shock or something. Right. I was beside myself because the God of the universe was not being worshipped. And I remember walking up to the roof of my hotel that night and just praying over the city. I was on a tall building. I could kind of look out over the, the temple square and the whole city. And I just remember being up there for an hour, walking back and forth, just mad. Yeah. I was so mad. Yeah. Mad because the name of the God of the universe was not being worshipped. And instead, the worship he should receive was being given to pieces of stone yeah. and and false rituals. And, right. oh, it just made me so mad. Mm. And, you know, I think I'm certainly not the only one that's ever experienced this, and that's not the only place. Those who have gone on our trips to South Asia, um, when we go to uh, Kolkata, we take a number of people to a, a big temple there called the Kaligat Temple, and you see the same thing. And right. it's really, it's a shocking experience. You have all these idols, and I still remember vividly so many scenes from that. There was one where someone was kneeling down to one of the Hindu statues and pleading with the statue and throwing money in front of it and kneeling and laying prostrate before the statue. And literally I watched as he pounded his fists on the cement ground in front of this inert statue. Right. Or as I, I, I stood in a line with a bunch of people that were literally elbowing and clawing each other and fighting to get into this narrow little room where there was the main idol of the god Kali in this temple. And they would get in and yell at the idol and throw money at the idol and desperately do anything to try to get the attention of this this piece of wood. Mm. And I just, you come out of that experience, and some of our students, I think, have been there. I think you've right. been there and yeah. seen it, and it's yeah. just, it's infuriating. Right. And I learned the meaning of the phrase provoked in spirit, mm. the God of the universe being neglected, instead false idols being worshipped. And that's what Paul feels as he walks around Athens, right? Yeah. So here you have this scene. So I'm setting all that up for you. That This is Paul. He's there by himself, and they've said, go to Athens, just wait for us. And Paul can't do it. <laughs> oh man! He walks around and yeah. he sees all this, and finally he's just burning yeah. so much on the inside. <laughs> he's just like, ah, I can't help myself anymore. And he's just got to talk into this, right? He's, he's an activator. He has got to speak into this. Now, in verse eighteen, it says there's these Epicureans and some other other people, the Stoics. These are these are our, our cultural groups are, are kind of schools of thought. These mm-hmm. are schools of scholars in Athens. And so you have all these different schools, and Paul ends up in this marketplace called the Agora, central marketplace in Athens, still there today. And this is where all these people would gather. And as it said in this section, they would just talk. They would come together and just <laughs> philosophize, oh right? This is, um, this is exactly what, what you would, you know, picture, I guess. So they're all, they're all, well-to-do philosophers mm-hmm. all pontificating in their robes and such. Like and it, it is. It's just kind of they, they like to philosophize. Yeah. And um, he ends up at a place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus literally means Hill of Ares or Mars Hill. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the Greek god of war, Ares, is what it's named for. And it's perhaps named that because in Greek mythology, Ares supposedly was tried there for murdering a son of Poseidon. So basically the Areopagus is a homicide court. 
Hmm. It's a place where things get decided, where cases get heard, right? Now, Paul may have been taken there. He may have stood up before the council in the Agora there. But there's, there's this long slope there where I think you would go up and then the people would gather under you and that you would speak to them. And this is exactly what happens. Paul goes and he begins engaging with the people of this town because he just can't help himself. Right. <laughs> He's got to talk. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, this is how it goes. So I'm going to have you read verse 22 and following. Okay, perfect. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, and others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So there it is. So this is the sermon. In other words, Paul goes to Athens. He's provoked in spirit. He goes down to engage them. And what does he say? Right. And this sermon is that, and it's recorded word for word. And so we need to pay attention to it. If it was valuable enough to record word for word in Scripture, let's look at those words and see what they say. Yeah. So let's start into this. A couple things I want you to note right off the bat. In verse 24 and 25, we understand Paul is preaching to Gentiles, right? He doesn't show up and start talking about Abraham and Moses, Hmm. nor does he show up and call God Yahweh, the Jewish name. No, he calls God kurios, which in Greek means lord or master or owner, the one who disposes of something as he wishes, right? This Mm. is how he addresses them. He understands his audience. Now that we're speaking to Gentiles, preaching the gospel looks different. Mm. And then Paul says a really interesting thing. God does not live in temples made by human hands. Now, why does he say that? If you know the scene, it would be obvious. And this is where I want to engage your imagination again. I have actually been... To Athens, Greece. Okay. And I have actually stood on the Areopagus wow. on Mars Hill because it's still there. Wow. Uh, I went there because I went on a romantic 25th anniversary cruise with my wife. Man. Super romantic. We cruised all over the Mediterranean. I'm going to put a slideshow of all of our vacation photos in the show notes. So you... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but we <laughs> went to Athens. <clears throat> One of the stops our cruise ship made was there in Athens. And I actually stood on Mars Hill in Athens where Paul delivered this sermon. And yes... I geeked out 
I got my Bible out and I read it mm. and all this. There's actually this huge plaque on the wall in the stone of the hill that is the entire sermon you just read. The entire passage you just read is printed in Greek on this plaque that is there on the hill. Um, and I, I'm happy to admit I was not the only one geeking out there. There were literally, no, this is true. There were literally 15 or 20 other people standing on the crest of Mars Hill, either quoting the whole sermon from memory or reading it out loud out of their Bibles. I was like, oh, look, it's Acts 17 geeks. This is where we are. It's like (laughs) an Acts 17 geek convention. Right. (laughs) That's so good. Oh, my God. But it was really true. Yeah, it really was. And so you can actually stand where Paul supposedly stood. Hmm. And, I mean, we might not know the exact location of where he was, but you can stand on the top of the hill. And the point is you can see what Paul saw. And when you stand there, you understand it. Because from Mars Hill in the center of Athens, you look down on this large courtyard, very, very large, which is the Agora Marketplace. And they've restored some of the buildings there. But just off to the side of that marketplace is the Temple of Hephaestus. And if you look to your right, there's a large hill taller than Mars Hill. And that's the very famous Parthenon. That's the Acropolis with the Parthenon on top of it. Now, the Parthenon was a complex of temples that had a small temple to Zeus as the head of the gods. Mm. Right next to the temple of Zeus was a temple of Nike. Mm. And yes, that's the same Nike that's on your shoes, in case you didn't know that. (laughs) Nike was the Greek winged goddess of victory. Mm. That's a freebie. All you podcast listeners out there, you can use that. Sound smart to your friends. That's a freebie. We're just going to give that little teaching That's a trivia winner right there. Exactly. You just keep that one. And then behind those two, you see the massive Parthenon. You see the Temple of Athena, which is still being restored today. Hmm. But massive, tall columns. This is the picture of Greece or the picture of Athens that you typically see on the front of a travel guide. And in this temple was a 40-foot tall statue of Athena, which is no longer there. But it it was kind of the center of idol worship in all of Greece. And of course, the city of Athens was named after the goddess Athena. Well, guess what? We live in the city of Athens. we do. And it's named after the goddess Athena. Did you know there's actually an Athena statue in Athens, Georgia? Yeah, in front of the Classic Center. It's in front of the Classic Center. Now, of course, ours is only three feet tall. It's not 40 feet tall. That would be weird if it was 40 feet tall. (laughs) But it's it's a reproduction of the statue that stood in the Parthenon. Hmm. And this is what Paul sees as he's standing on Mars Hill He looks around, and you can picture him as he looks at the crowd. He says, The God who made heaven and earth does not live in temples made by human hands. And as he says that, he swings his arm out and points to the temple of Hephaestus and points up to the Parthenon. Mm -hmm. And he's basically saying, The God who made heaven and earth is not like this, as he points Mm. to the Parthenon. That's a radical message for the Gentiles of Athens to hear. And right. this is where Paul launches. And he says, they, he does not live in, in houses made by human hands. Then he says, nor is he served by human hands. This is a direct shot at idols. Hmm. You know, Isaiah 40 is a passage where Isaiah decries and kind of denounces the idols of Israel's past. And he says, he says this in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. Hmm. And he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. 
And then he goes on later and says, he cuts a tree in half. With half of it, he heats his food for dinner. And then he, the other half he takes and he bows down and he worships it. That's what Isaiah talks about. That's, oh that's what, what he says idols are like that's in Isaiah crazy. chapter 40. You see what Paul is saying. In Isaiah 40, the, the author Isaiah says, to whom will you compare God or literally who will you lay beside the Lord? Like if you were laying them out on a table to compare them, who would you even compare them to? No one. See, idols are served by human hands. You got to get a good piece of wood. You got to nail it down so it won't fall over, right? This is the God you're worshiping if you're an idolater, right? Mm. And Paul says, God's not like this. Mm. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not an idol like you think he is. Now, in the West, we tend to think these idol passages are kind of strange, and that's because we don't have idols. Right. And so in the West... We spiritualize the idea, and we go to church and say, anything that challenges God's supremacy in your life is an idol, which is completely true, completely valid scriptural message. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's literally talking about physical idols here, and you have to understand that for the story to make sense. This is not some far-off past scene in long-ago history either. This scene gets played out for about one-third of the world's population every single day right now. I have been in markets in Tibet or Kolkata where idols are made. I have walked through a factory where there were men on ladders literally putting pieces of wood together to make a large Buddha statue and just hammering away at it and painting it. And I just thought to myself, do they ever see the discrepancy between the fact they're putting this thing together and then they're going to worship it or worship the idea it represents? I've been to a market in Kolkata where you can walk into a store and get your shiny gold-painted idol all wrapped in cellophane, nice and clean, take it home, put it on your shelf, and worship it. This happens every day. I've been to these places, and so have a lot of our students. This is very real. Hmm. And Paul looks at this and says, God is not like that. What is he like? And these are probably my favorite verses in all of Scripture because these two verses changed my life. In Acts 17, 26 and 27, Paul says, The God who made heaven and earth, in 24 and 25, says, says, Does not dwell in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, that would be Adam, he created all nations of men, Jew and Gentiles, determine the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. And then Paul says, why? Why did God create everything? He says, he did this so that men would seek him Hmm. and perhaps reach out for him and find him, even though he's not far from each one of us. Paul introduces the God of the universe to them. This is what God is like. Hmm. God has made everything. He gives you your very breath, and he's there to be found if you'll just reach out and seek him. Hmm. And he's not far from each one of us. I remember the first time I saw Acts 17, 26 and 27, I think I was a second semester freshman in college. And my discipler was going through a passage with me, the guy I was meeting with, he was just opening the word of God to me for the first time in my life. And I came across these verses and it suddenly hit me If these sentences are true, this is the meaning of life. Hmm. Basically, this is the meaning of life in one sentence, verse 27. He did this so that we would seek him. In other words, the whole reason the universe exists, the reason you and I exist, the reason we're alive, 
is to know God. That's really what that sentence says. It's nothing less than the very meaning of life. And I remember the first time I saw that, suddenly I was rocked. Everything in my life finally made sense for the first time. I was always asking the big questions of why are you here and how are you supposed to live life and Hmm. what is it for? And suddenly I realized this makes sense. Everything about us comes down to this relationship with God. Hmm. Now you have to understand what that means and the significance of this. That means this is who we are. This is the purpose of our lives. Everything hangs or falls on this. Do you seek and know God? Hmm. And what that means is the purpose of your life, and what this means is the purpose of your life is not to get a good job. It's not to make a lot of money. It's not to get married. It's not to have kids. All that's great. And that comes in life as the Lord chooses to give it. But that's not why we are here. That's not why we walk planet Earth. No, we are spiritual beings. And the purpose of our being here is this relationship with God, that we can find Him and know Him through Jesus Christ. And that all of history points to that fact and leads us toward it. This is what Paul says as he preaches this sermon. (laughs) He says, you have had all these idols around you your whole life because you're spiritual beings. But the thing you're really looking for is this. The God of the universe calls you to himself. And then he goes on and he delivers the defining point in verses 29 and 30. He sums up and says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill, all those idols that we've been talking about. And then he says this, In the past... God overlooks such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Hmm. You see what he's doing? He's standing up in front of people, and he is saying, Jehovah is God, and he will not be put in the same place as any false god or human philosophy. He is above it all. And he calls on a response. And what was the response? Repent. Right. Right. And that's when the message really gets delivered. I had a, I had a discipler in college, someone who, who was one of my leaders actually in crew. And he, I remember as we were talking about sharing the gospel with somebody one day, he said all of life and really every time we have a spiritual conversation with someone boils down to two questions. Who is God and what will you do with him? Hmm. Who is God and what will you do with him? that all of your life hinges on those two questions, and we do people a disservice if we do not take those questions to them and call them to answer them. And that's what Paul does here. Here, Paul completely breaks with his audience, and he preaches a message that disrupts everything. He was doing so well up until then. He was meeting them on their ground, talking about idols, using the scenery around him. It's like they were engaged. And then he says, you have to repent. This is where the gospel blows things up. Right. This is why the, the disruption would happen everywhere Paul went in all these missionary journeys and why he'd be chased out of cities and different things. Because when you preach the gospel, it leads to disruption because you call for repentance. This is why the world hates Jesus and often hates Christians. You see this even in John 15. Remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples about the response to the religious leaders? He said, if I had not come, they would not have known their sin, but now they have known their sin, and they have hated both me and their father. Hmm. 
It was the idea when Jesus showed up, he showed them that they were sinful and needed to repent. How do you think people liked that? Not very well. Did you, did you like it in class when in elementary school when you'd raise your hand and answer a question and the teacher would say you're wrong? No, you that, hated that. We hated that, right? Well, imagine right. being wrong like that on a cosmic scale. That's what our sin is. Right. Naturally, we don't want to go there. We hate to be confronted with sin. But that's what Paul does. He calls on repentance. This is the gospel. This is why Christ is called the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Is because... We must stumble. We must re- admit our sin and realize we cannot save ourselves and we have no righteousness to offer. Yeah. And that's what happens. So Paul talks about the resurrection and calls them to Jesus. And it says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Mm-hmm. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And then later in verse 34, you read that several people repented and became Jesus' followers and started meeting with Paul regularly. Right yeah. Now that's really interesting, and that's the end of the sermon. Mm-hmm. You get three responses, and this is universal. Whenever you preach Christ, whenever you share the gospel with somebody, you will always get one of three responses. Either, I reject this, I accept and believe this, or I want to hear more. Yeah. Those are the three responses. And Man. Paul gets all three of them right. at the end of this sermon. Paul received all three, we will too. And so here we see this sermon that Paul preaches. It was a success. It wasn't a failure. These are prominent converts from the Areopagus in verse 34. Um, And basically this whole message is written to show the successful spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. And this story is no exception. And that's how Paul presents the gospel in this setting. And people have a choice to receive it or not. Right. Wow, that is an amazing story. Amazing sermon. Um, and, mm-hmm. and just like you explained, like picturing, picturing the scene of what's going on and how he's addressing these people, and then how he calls them to repent and believe in Jesus. Yeah. Um, man, that's amazing. So, so this was a sermon yep. to the Athenians mm-hmm. in Athens, Greece. Yep. And so now to us, maybe in Athens, Georgia. Yeah. Um, Alan, what do you think are some applications for us today as we? encounter a story or a sermon like this um, in in the Bible. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So what's the message to the Athenians in Athens, Georgia? Right. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of cute how we do that, right? Yeah. I think there's a number of different lessons that we've observed already, but let's just summarize them up and, and think about how would we live these out, right? I would say, number one, cultivate your sensitivity to the name of God being offended. Paul was provoked in spirit. How often are we provoked in spirit? How often are we distressed and disturbed by the lack of worship of the Most High God? How often do we feel that kind of righteous anger? And I think that's just a good question for us to ask. Is my appreciation of God high enough, basically, is what we're asking. Do I really feel he's that important? Do I really feel he's that grand and glorious, that he deserves that worship? You know, for our students... What about you? Do you look around our Athens and feel disturbed like Paul when you see men and women not worshiping God, when you see men and women rejecting the Lord, or when you see them dishonoring him uh, in order to pursue their own idols, which in our case would be spiritual, not physical? Honestly, it really translates over in our Athens too. I just think we need to cultivate that sensitivity to the glory of God. Right. And that righteous anger, that, that anger is a good anger because it's just. Mm. And, and we don't want to spurn people, and we don't want to spurn that anger. We want to join it in a motivation 
to take the gospel to those who don't have it so the worship of God is established. Absolutely. Secondly, I think I would say contextualize the gospel, but don't change the gospel. That's a good lesson here. Here, contextualization means Paul's preaching the gospel in a way his audience can understand and grasp. He's using illustrations they're familiar with. He's speaking to them in a language they understand. And when we do that, we can go to an audience and seek that commonality. But he did not change the message of the gospel. Right. Regardless of how they would respond to it, regardless of how it would disrupt their lives, regardless of how it would make some people unhappy and they would not like it, he would not change the actual message of the gospel. Hmm. And that's important. So we need to contextualize as much as we can, but never actually change the call of God. That's yeah. a good lesson we learned from the sermon. Absolutely. Three, join with the church throughout history in refusing to let God be seen as anything less than completely supreme. Hmm. And that, of course, is especially in our own lives. But then also in the lives of our culture, I'm not saying go out and and have to fight a culture war and and all the, the political trappings that comes with necessarily. But what I am saying is we as believers, as Christians, we refuse to let our God just be put in one more little niche next to all the religious idols of the world. And we are disliked because of that. We are disagreed with because of that. Sometimes we are slandered because of that. But we must, like the early church, refuse to let God be seen and known as anything than what he is, which is the most high supreme God over all the universe. He's not just another philosophy. He's not just another way of thinking. He's not just another perspective or another orientation. No, the gospel doesn't come in word, but in power. It is a real power. The Lord is real. The Lord is true. And we can't just accept when someone says, well, that's just your philosophy and that's fine. No. It is not just that, but it's a matter of truth. And the Christian believes that. Yeah. And lastly, I would say this. If you're listening to this podcast and you hear this story and you find yourself being like the Athenians of old where you're hearing this message and you're hearing the Lord say to you, this is the purpose of your life, that you would seek him and reach out for him and find him even though he's not far from each one of us. And you've never thought about that before and you've never embraced that before let me invite you seek that lord who's not far from you reach out and find him we would love to help you do that and would love to have a conversation with you like that and and tell you how that's done tell you how we came to know the lord that way but i would just say just like those verses said this is the very purpose and meaning of all of human existence and if you miss this you have missed everything so talk to us reach out to us. We would love to tell you more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's all really good. And those, those, those application points are, they're challenging, but they're all very necessary, I think, as we as we lean in and as we um, respond to God in this way. So thanks for sharing that with us and, and thanks for sharing the story. And so for everyone listening, thanks again for tuning in and be sure to keep following us on the Acts Reading Plan and um, we'll talk to you next week.